Good morning. You guys ready for 22? I need a week. I'm going to need the whole week. I want to let you know that, if not more. Um, welcome to Portico Church. Uh, it's, man, it's the day after Christmas. I'm loving it. If you're joining us online, we're glad you're here. You can turn your Bible to 1 Samuel. We'll be in chapter 7, verses 3 through 12. One of the things that we do as a country, we do as a culture, is we use the last part of the year to remember, don't we? We kind of review, how did this year go? How do we think next year is going to go? And you know that's a part of how we live, and here's why. Two days ago, my phone, because it's, you know, it helps me, it told me that I should repost and I should reshare some of the memories that I have. In fact, it made this awesome little movie of part of our sabbatical trip that we did this year. It had made this movie called Bryce Canyon, and so I watched it. And it was based on the pictures that Christy and I had taken while we were hiking out there, and we loved it. And something, it's interesting because what it caused me to do is to have joy. I remembered the trip. In fact, sometimes when we, we look at little movies like that, the trip almost becomes better than it actually was. That's how our memories work. Yeah, it was great. In fact, I shared it with somebody else. It made me, it provoked me to share this memory with others. We do this because remembering is powerful. Nobody lives their life based on data or on, you know, how, how you wanted it to go. You remember how it actually went. That's how our brains work. Uh, there's a book called The Power of Moments, and it makes this, this idea real that your life is really not just data. The way that you understand your life is based on how you remember it, right? Life is made up of moments. There's high moments, good things, and low things, and that's how we understand and see our life. Let me just read. It's uh, written by uh, Chip Heath, and I want to just read a quick quote. It says, Defining moments rewire our understanding of ourselves or the world. In a few seconds or minutes, we realize something that might influence our lives for decades. For instance, now is the time for me to start a business or get married. And it's true. How you understand your history, how you understand the things that have happened to you this year, and how you understand them is how you see your future. So how we remember is very powerful for the future you're going to move into. I was thinking just about how I remembered that trip. It makes me want to do it again makes me want to experience it all over. So that's part of how I remember. It also makes me want to avoid pain. Right? That's what memories do. Because it hurts sometimes. <laughs> we hiked a lot. But it gives me an understanding and a view of a future that I want. We remember our past because either we don't want to repeat it or there's something about our past that we want in our future. This is a good time to do that. We're tired, it's after Christmas, we're a little worn out, but we are thinking about what 22 is gonna be like. And the way we're doing that is through how we remember. I'm gonna to read to you out of 1 Samuel chapter seven, and we're just gonna cover verses three through 12. 
And the reason I want to read this to you today is because it ends talking about something that we sung about today, Ebenezer. Ebenezer is not something out of the, a Christmas story. Ebenezer is out of Scripture. It has a very important meaning for us to understand today. So just to catch you up in the conflict here, um, this is a story of conflict. This is about Israel and the Promised Land. And their story never quite goes the way they want it to, and so it's a story of conflict. And how God meets them and how God directs them and, and shepherds them through that is very key. So what we're reading into is Samuel, and he was a prophet. He would judge them as well. And how God used Samuel to redirect their minds and their hearts towards how they remember and how they enter into the future. So I'm going to jump right in, chapter 7, verse 3. And I want you to focus on the very end part of it. The very, how Samuel shepherds them. What does this mean for us now? Verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. That's where their main conflict is. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all of Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines, this is key, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines, that's their leaders, went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, for he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion or panic. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then here we go. So what? What do we take from this? Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, it's on a main road, and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We're not quite sure what to expect next year. We're not quite sure how to make sense of this year. So as we come before you, we ask, Lord, as we look deeply into your word, that you would give us the grace and the mercy of having your word look deeply into us, Lord, that you would open it up that we might understand what it means that you are our helper. 
So we give you this time, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So right off the bat, don't miss this. Israel's in what they would call the promised land. This is what they had always hoped for, to be with God, to be together with their family, with their tribes, to enjoy the good life that God had promised them. And in a very real way, we over-spiritualize this maybe, the promised land was about the good life. It was to be full of milk and honey and flowing. There was to be an absence of conflict because God was going to go with Joshua and the rest of Israel and remove all, those, all these cultures that were wicked, according to Scripture, and needed to be judged, but also needed to be removed from that land so that God could essentially reestablish Eden and make Israel a nation of priests. But man, the good life is always threatened. Can I get an amen? Really, the good life is... Your, your vision of the good life never quite gets there, and we see it right here in Scripture. There's always something. There's always something. There's always a broken relationship to deal with. There's always something you've thought you've handled that comes back. That was what the Philistines were about. Joshua never quite got them all the way out. And who were the Philistines? Man, they were, they were violent folk. They were along the coast, right? So they had the beach. That's a problem for me, right off the bat. I think we should have started there and like cleared the beach first and then came inland. They had the beach. They were down south, a little towards Egypt. They were seafaring people. They had a very violent history. If you remember all the way back to Exodus, when God was bringing Israel out, by God's grace, he said, hey, let's not go down along the sea because the Philistines are there, and I don't, you know, let's go around them because they're going to they're gonna fight, and they're going to fight hard, and I don't think you're ready for that. I don't want you to lose heart this early. So God goes around them, but they never quite got rid of them. Their technology was better than Israel. They understood bronze and iron much better than Israel did. In fact, they had to sharpen Israel's knives and swords. So they were an oppressor of Israel. They ruined their life, quite frankly. They were a constant threat to everything Israel wanted to do. And also it was a constant opportunity for Israel to trust God. So when you think about their good life, you would think that the Philistines were really the true threat, which makes sense. You're going to continue to go to war. You can never really spend your own resources on your own nation, can you? And that's where Israel was. But scripture, the text gives us another threat, and it's the bigger threat. Did the Philistines matter? Of course. But what was the real threat to the good life here? Well, verse 4, it starts by saying, in verse 3, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, and put away the foreign gods, the Asherah. Give your heart fully to the Lord. So the people put away the Baals and the Asherah. Is that just an aside? Is it just like, hey, by the way, when you, when you get around to it, Yes, the Philistines are the big problem, but when you get around to it, let's clean up worship a little bit. Like, let's, let's not do those things. That's not, that's not what he's saying. That is the main threat Israel always had. 
is that you would replace the primary relationship in your life with something other than me. So the true threat to Israel in this, and the Philistines mattered, but you are using their system to control life, their system to bring comfort into your life. And since you were afraid you couldn't overcome them, you started pulling in their power system and their worship system. And it wasn't something you just added to it, you replaced God. That was the threat. That was the real threat. And what do I mean by that? Because it just seems so odd to us, doesn't it? Do you, are, does anybody here worship Baal? All right, very good. That's what I wanted to hear. But let's understand what that meant. Most of Israel was an agrarian society. So the two gods that are mentioned here are Baal and Ashtaroth. Baal was essentially the god of rain. Ashtaroth, depending on whether it was Canaanite or Philistine, for the most part, was the god of fertility. If you wanted life to go well, you had better have rain, and your livestock had better produce and reproduce. And let's just add Dagon in there, because they show up later. Your grain had better come in. It's okay to trust God for the big things like war, but when it comes to everyday life, we want some ability to control our comfort and our security, and so did Israel. And the way it worked there, because the Philistines had more power, is you just kind of cooperate to graduate. Like, they seem to get what they need. I don't want to, I don't want to fight these people the rest of my life. Scripture calls that idolatry. Well, that's not a temptation for me. Okay, let's bring it into our lives. Idolatry is when a good thing, like rain or grain or fertility, when a good thing becomes a God thing. That means the primary pursuit of your life is to have that thing. That's what Scripture is talking about. So that is very relevant for us today. It is very easy for us to use a good thing and make it something that it's, we have to have it. Let me just use the idea of peace for a minute because Israel wanted peace and they didn't have it because of the Philistines. Do you want peace? Do you want peace? Do you want peace? You don't. Okay. Everybody else wants peace. It's the absence of conflict. When we think of Scripture, it's not just external peace. That was a military idea, but it's internal peace. We're probably more attuned to internal peace, where there's a lack of conflict between who we want to be and who we are, and how we want life to go, and how it is, and how God even works into that. But we want peace, and most of us have work that we do. We, most of us do that. And so for our culture, how we find peace is through work. Now, in Generation X, which I'm technically a part of, we use work to get money because we wanted stuff. And so work was primarily about a lot of cash so we could find a way to live that was peaceful for us. We could buy privacy. We could buy whatever we wanted. And of course, each generation reacts on the generation before it because we would raise up the millennials. I kind of got in that group too. But the millennials were smarter than that to a degree. They're like, it's not really about things that you own and money. It's about access and experience. And life is more important than that. But also, millennials want meaning out of their work. And it's really tough to get that. 
So along comes Generation Y. They're like, you guys are all dumb. Why, why work? And that's, that's not a slam. I'm wondering about that. Reddit, the biggest community, well, the third biggest community on Reddit right now is anti-work. That's what it's called. The Great Resignation. And everybody's like, yeah, I'm logging in like 20 minutes after this sermon, right? We find peace by getting out of work. We find peace by getting money from work. We find peace from meaning from work. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. It's idolatry. If you need your work to give you peace, you're worshiping something other than God. You're replacing the primary relationship that you should have in your life, which is with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and you're using something else to give you what you think is your greatest need. So this is very relevant for us. Your good life is always going to be threatened. Friend, your job could go away. Your career could go away. You could get in a car accident and not be able to work again. Now, there's many other ways that we could explain idolatry, but that is so relevant for us. Israel found peace by embracing the local gods because they seem to be very practical. We need rain. We need grain. We need fertility. And we don't need to be fighting with the Philistines for the rest of our life. How are we ever going to get anywhere? Life is always threatened. But, as we see here, there's more to the story. It may be true that your good life is always going to be threatened. But it teaches us here that when God is your help, when God is how you define good, then your life is also good. Life is good when God is your helper. Life is good when God belongs to you. That's how covenant works. It's like a marriage. I belong to you, you belong to me. Well, that's weird. That's not how we think about it. Yeah, that's a problem. That's how Scripture defines relationships between God and his creatures. He commits himself to them, that's covenant love, and we commit ourselves to God himself. Why? Is that just the way it's supposed to be? No, you were created for it. As Pastor Johnny Reeves said, you were created to be in a love-trust relationship with God himself. And there's nothing else that can fulfill that need because you were created for it. When you were divorced from him, you never feel like you get there. So life is good when God is your help. And how does that start off? Well, don't miss this. The antidote to idolatry is repentance. If you're asking yourself, what do, what do I need to know, what do I need to do to have a real relationship with God? Well, it's very Old Testament. You need to repent. But what does that mean? That mean, Well, it's very clear here. You need to return to the Lord, it says that. So you need to return to the Lord, and you need to reject that which you're using as God. And then you need to direct your heart to him. That's what Samuel told him. That's what re- Some form of that is what we see in repentance throughout the entire scriptures. 
But know this, in its essence, you are abandoning something else to embrace Jesus. That's what repentance is. And repentance opens up the door. It's the beginning or the threshold to having a real relationship with God. There's no other way. So life is good when God is your repentance, when he is yours, when he is ready for you. And he is. And note this. Do you see this in Scripture? They did that. And that solved everything for them, right? No. What happened as they're repenting? What happened as they were cut to the heart and said, you know what? You're right. We're trusting in everything but God. And they direct their hearts to the Lord. What did Philistines do? Like, it's go time. The five or so areas, the lords of the Philistines and the whole region, coordinated and they attacked. When you repent, and it's something not that you do just once, but it's an ongoing process for the rest of your life, you invite opposition all the time. Because it's not just about doing the right thing. You are actively replacing or removing false worship so that you can worship God from your heart. And that's violent because we live in darkness, friends. And nobody wants you to do that but God himself. So it invites opposition. And so what you might say to me is, well, and who could ever do that, man? I've got enough to fight in my life. I can't fight for this too. Well, I would tell you, you're right, but it's the one thing you need to fight for. And also... The text gives us some very important information at the very end. It says this. I'm just going to read it. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shun. It would have been a road they would have been on and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, till now the Lord has helped us. You see, when Israel scared and said, we've given ourselves to the Lord, we have, we're ready for this, and the Philistines come for them, they call out and God meets them. And it says he thunders greatly, which is a little bit of a play on words because Baal was the thunder god. God meets them. And what Samuel wants them to do is to say, no matter what you remember about your past, no matter how good or bad this was for you, remember this. When you see this stone, because they literally set up a stone, Remember that God is your helper. That's what Ebenezer means. Eben, stone or rock, and Azer. It's the stone of help. Whatever you remember, remember that this day the Lord helps me. So it's a call to remember that God is your helper. Till now the Lord has helped us. Do you think like that? Think about the things that you repost on your social media. Think about the things you want people to know about you. Think about the things that are your rock. Are you banking on God's goodness for your future? Seriously. Are you making decisions now that require you to trust God as a rock in your future? This is, this is how this text hit me this week. 
how would I live differently if I was absolutely convinced that God would be my helper? You, you realize he's putting himself in a position where he's just serving you. And that's not what God is, right? He's, your, he's a creator. And that's how grace works. And he wants to serve you. Are you banking on God's goodness? Well, we don't have a stone that we look at, do we? Where's it at now? Should we set up a rock in here? I don't know. Maybe we should. But I don't think so. I might get run out of here if I did that. See, it was pointing forward to another rock. And that rock is Jesus. He's the true rock. He's the rock of our salvation. Well, how do we look at that? We will look at it this way. You know God is your helper. You know God actually serves you in this relationship that he invites you into in this way. When we look at the cross, when we look at how Jesus lived to give away his life, we see how he actually gave away his life for you, and then he took it up again to open the door for you to be in relationship with God. That's your Ebenezer. That's your rock of help. That's where you can go to the Lord and say, no, I've seen this. I know what my future is about, and I know that my future will include you, right? I belong to you, and you are mine. So the call for us, and this is a big one, and it's kind of a quiet day, right? We're still opening presents. As you're moving into 22, as you're trying to make sense of this year, you're trying to plan for next year. Bank on his goodness. What, what are you going to remember about this year that convinces you that God is good? Because a lot of us had a hard year. It's not to say that the Philistines aren't going to attack and that you're going to suffer great loss. What it says is, you are seen, you are loved, and you will not walk alone. And God will get you home. That's what Jesus as your rock means. So I would ask you to do one thing today as we're letting this scripture fill our hearts. Till now, the Lord has helped us. It's a call to trust in the Lord. But here's one thing I'd ask you to do. Today, Tell someone, it's probably going to be a family member, maybe it's a friend, tell someone, this is how the Lord has been my rock this year. One way. This is how the Lord has been my rock. This is how the Lord has helped me till now. And I'm so encouraged and convinced by that as I move into 22, no matter how good or bleak it looks, that's my anchor. So tell somebody, this is how the Lord has been my rock this year. And if you're like, I don't even know how to answer that. What if I don't know how to answer that? Repent. Return to the Lord. This is an open door for you. Reject anything that gets in the way. And direct your heart to him. Belong to him fully. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to open doors that no one else can close for you. And he wants you. That's how love works. He is our helper. That's staggering when you think that he's the God of the universe. Bank 
would you do that with me? Can we do that as Portico? Can we bank on God's goodness? Can we make decisions as a family that absolutely require us to believe that God is good? Yeah, we can. That's what God is calling us to do. So think, again, this, this is worth reposting. This is, this is it. This is worth remembering, and this should change how you see your life and how you see your own story. Bank on his goodness. Lord, I thank you. Um, you, have, you have taught me over and over and over again to bank on your goodness, to bet my life on it. I can be public with one way. I forgot to do that, but I'm going to do it in a prayer. My wife, 34 years, Lord, we celebrated this month. Um, didn't look like we were going to get through five, to be honest with you. But it required both of us to believe that you were, you were better than we are, that you're good even when we're not. And so I want to publicly thank you and praise you and say to everyone, God has been good to me. He's been my rock by how he's provided for me. Um, a wonderful, beautiful, lovely wife. And I thank you for that. I pray that you would speak by your spirit and your word, God, to every single person here, that they might know you as good. In the name of Jesus, amen.